Appreciate that. Uh, we could probably close in prayer now. <laughs> that was that was excellent, just excellent. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect and Student Ministries. I'm going to try to keep my eyes on y'all while I come back here and get some uh, stool for the water. There we go. That wasn't too bad, was it? Well, uh, praise the Lord that we are here together again at our Sunday gathering to worship Him, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, to encourage one another and build one another up. Uh, you're going to hear a lot today. You heard it in the music, and then, then Brad was uh, emphasizing that as well, and then in the, uh, the text that we're going to be going through in the message, a lot about, about community and togetherness and, and uniting together. And, and so uh, let me just encourage you to take those words to heart, uh, men, if you have opportunity to, to join in that where you can, and uh, wherever you are, man, woman, or child, to join into the life of the church, uh, because you'll be, you'll be richly blessed and you'll grow as a result of it. All right, we're going to be in uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. As you know, last week, our lead pastor, Sam Shaw, began a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, that we're gonna, we're, so we're going to be walking through that entire book. And uh, last week, he introduced the book of Nehemiah, talked a little bit about its background, and uh, preached through the first two chapters. So if you weren't here last week, I'll just encourage you to uh, go to YouTube or the uh, website and uh, look up that sermon and catch up. But if this is your first time here, you're not going to be lost. It'll still make sense as a standalone message. So uh, I'll be preaching from Nehemiah chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Did I already say that? Okay, do it again. <laughs> Just kidding. Make sure your neighbor did it. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, uh, if you are familiar with Nehemiah chapter 3, either from being just that good at knowing Scripture or because you've read it recently knowing that we're going through it, then uh, you'll know that Nehemiah chapter 3 is just filled with, with names and, and these mundane details about the wall around Jerusalem uh, what, who worked on what part of the wall and that kind of thing. So I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I do want to give you guys a feel of what it's like. So I'm going to read the first 12 verses and then the final two verses just to put uh, the capstone at the end of it. So follow along with me, Nehemiah chapter 3. And actually because of the uh, difficulty of these names, I'm definitely going to try to get these right. My glasses. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the son of Imri built. The sons of Hasaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshullam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired... Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. 
Next to them, Uzziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. And then skipping ahead to verse 31, the chapter wraps up this way. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Now, I, I would encourage you to, uh, if you haven't read it, to go ahead and, and go back and read the whole chapter. Really read the whole book. You don't want to just read Nehemiah chapter 3 or you won't have any sense of the movement <laughs> in the book other than this little uh, building report. Now, uh, when, when Sam assigned me this chapter to preach, of course, I was not so familiar with the book of Nehemiah that I was immediately able to say, well, maybe, maybe that would be a good one for, uh, for you, Sam. <laughs> Because once I waded into this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is, uh, this is quite interesting. It's sort of like, uh, someone mentioned this to me this morning, it's sort of like preaching through uh, one of the genealogies. And I remembered the years ago on a, a Christmas Sunday, or probably the Sunday after Christmas, that's when I usually would get opportunities <laughs> when the senior pastor needs a break. Uh, Sunday after Christmas, I did preach through a genealogy from the book of Matthew, so uh, I was reminded and inspired by that, and we can, we can get through this. This will be good. And by the way, let me say this too. Uh, at the outset, I realize if you look at it, you may be thinking, okay, I, I don't really see what spiritual truth we're going to be able to grab from this. I, I really don't see the Lord at, at work so clearly in this, but I assure you as we consider this and walk through it that you will clearly see God at work, and there are several wonderful truths that the Lord wants to teach us. Now, uh, it's, it's not easy, impossible for most of us to really form a mental picture from all of this text. So I, I looked around and found a diagram of the wall around Jerusalem that has all of the, uh, pretty much all of the items mentioned in, uh, in Nehemiah 3 on it. And you'll see that what they did, uh, the sheep gate is there at the uh, upper, let's see from your perspective, upper right and uh, that was where things began in the chapter. Uh, uh, Nehemiah starts by saying that the high priest, Eliashib, and his fellow priests, they repaired the sheep gate. And then he just walks around the entire wall of the city, going from gate to gate and tower to tower, naming all of the various landmarks and saying that this was repaired and this was worked on until he worked his way back to the sheep gate. And as we're trying to draw truth from this chapter, I want you guys to think for a minute about the content because the... Uh, the, the tempting thing, and I almost did this. Let me just confess this. I almost did this. I almost decided what I would do is just import something I liked better into it and try to find a jumping off point for that. But that's really not a legitimate way uh, to preach or to study scripture. Uh, so thank the Lord he stopped me from that. But I want you to think about the contents of this chapter and what truths we can draw. And, and, and specifically to help frame your thinking, I want you to think about this question. What is God's purpose for Nehemiah 3. Why is Nehemiah 3 included in the book of Nehemiah? 
As I mentioned before, the most noticeable feature is this list of names. There are 38, I counted them, 38 individuals that are mentioned in this chapter, 12 different groups of people that are mentioned. And in addition to that, of course, he mentions the different gates and the towers and pieces of the wall that are named and features on the wall that were landmarks. Now, Nehemiah didn't mention everybody that worked on the wall. Even Nehemiah couldn't put together a list that big. So uh, it's most likely that what we're seeing here, all these names that we're seeing, are the people that were the foremen of the various crews that were working on the wall. But why go to all that trouble? Why go to all the trouble to mention all those names? Why would the Holy Spirit of God inspire Nehemiah to record this as a permanent part of Holy Scripture from henceforth and forever? Why, Lord? Well, I can think of several reasons. For one, to show the importance of Jerusalem's wall. By listing all of these names of the people that worked on the parts of the wall, and by listing all of the parts of the wall, Nehemiah is emphasizing that this wall is important. If it's worth mentioning all of this, then it must be very important to God because it was included in Holy Scripture. And why is this wall so important? It's true that walls around cities in those days were necessary for security and, and to enable a city to, to flourish and develop in peace and safety. But there were surely lots of cities in Israel whose walls were in ruins. So why was rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem so important? Why did God burden Nehemiah with this task? In fact, burden Nehemiah so deeply that Nehemiah would depart from the country in which he was living, depart from his job as cupbearer to the king to spend years investing in rebuilding this project. Why did God move the heart of Artaxerxes to agree to send his cupbearer, his high official, on this task and even provide all that he needed to, to build it? Why is this wall so important? And of course, the answer is this wall is important because the city that it surrounds is important. And the reason the city is important is because Jerusalem was the one city in the entire earth that God chose to have his temple built in. The one place in the entire earth that God said, that is where my house will be. That is where acceptable worship will be offered to me. That will be the center of all of the worship of the one true God. And that was what made Israel the most important city in all the earth. And that was why the wall around Jerusalem was the most important wall in all the earth. And to underscore that truth, Nehemiah, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, recorded this long list of names and places. Another reason that I think that Nehemiah 3 is here is to honor those who worked on Jerusalem's wall because, again, of the importance of the project. The pulpit commentary says the special object of this chapter seems to be the rendering of honor where honor was due, the putting on record of the names of the men who boldly came to the front on this occasion, sacrificed their ease to their duty, and exposed themselves to a threatened hostile attack. Romans 13 says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Huh. No, I'm sorry. I'm not going to take a side line. We're going ahead. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, uh, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Nehemiah, again, operating under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, knew that you should honor those who deserve honor. These people sacrificed their time, their energy, their resources, and their safety to do the work of God, and so they deserve to be honored. 
And so, so the Spirit had their names recorded permanently in Scripture. And what a tremendous lesson for all of us to take to heart. May we follow his example and honor the people in our lives that deserve honor. Speaking of that, as you will know, next week is Mother's Day, May the 8th. So for all of you in here, let me just say it's an opportunity for you to honor your mothers, to honor the woman who gave you life and the woman who cared for you with unfailing love and affection. That's an opportunity we all have. Or think about this question. Is there somebody in your life who's been especially influential in your spiritual growth? Someone who's really helped you to see Jesus for who he is and point you toward him. Let me encourage you to reach out to that person this week and honor them by thanking them and letting them know that they had an impact on your life. In honoring those who helped, this is interesting. Nehemiah also took the opportunity to dishonor these men who deserved dishonor. Verse 5 says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Their nobles, the ruling class of this town of Tekoa, would not stoop to serve their Lord. What a horrible and awful rebuke of these proud men. They wouldn't humble themselves to do the common work of rebuilding a wall. These men obviously did not truly respect the Lord or regard him highly since they thought so highly of themselves. It reminded me of an observation that C.S. Lewis once made that the proud man cannot know God because the proud man is always looking down and so he cannot see what is above, which is, of course, the Most High God. These nobles of the Tekoites were proud and full of themselves and regarded God's work as beneath them. The most important building project on earth, one that would be memorialized for all time, the wall that God wanted to be built was beneath them in their minds. And along with the honored workers then, these nobles of Tekoa are memorialized for their sinful pride. It made me ask myself, and so I'll ask you too, because I want all of us to feel uncomfortable together. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Have you ever had a good work that the Lord placed right in front of you and you thought, felt, or acted as if it was beneath you? Ah, that's, that's for somebody else too. I'm, I'm too important for that. I'm too busy. I'm too handsome. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's easy for us to, get to, to think that, right? We, we, a very humble opportunity comes along and we can think, well, that's, that's not really for me. That's for some less mature Christian or, or a, a teenager. <laughs> Teens, y'all ever get the, uh, you know, the, the chores that your parents don't want to do? Only a few nods. Y'all are being good. Okay, that's right. Honor your mother. Just forget that question. I've been there many times, as a matter of fact, and one, one specific uh, example I can think of is that I often think that I am above the task of reaching out in hospitality. 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 Above the act of speaking English, apparently. Above the act of hospitality and reaching out to that weird family that's on the fringe of the congregation, thinking, well, somebody else needs to do that. And I'm trying not to make eye contact with anybody. So I'm, not, I'm not thinking of anybody specifically, okay? It's general. So when the Lord places a good work in front of you to do, when the Lord places it on your heart to do a good work, 
please have the humility to recognize that this is a blessing and honor and a joy, and you are not above anything. Our Lord and Savior himself washed the dirty feet of those 12 men that he called apostles, men who didn't deserve to stand in his shadow, and he humbled himself to wipe the mud and the muck off their feet with the towel that he was wearing. May we follow in the example of the people of Tekoa instead of their nobles and humble ourselves to do the work of God. And although the Tekoite nobles responded shamefully, there were actually many other powerful people that did stoop to serve their Lord. The chapter begins, as I mentioned, by talking about the high priest himself, Eliashib. I mean, this man had the most exalted position in the nation of Israel, and even he recognized my God and king wants me to help build this wall. I will do that. It says that the high priest as well as the other priests work. And you think about a group of men amongst all the people of Israel that could have said, well, we've got, we've got temple duties to do. We've got sacrifices to do. Commanded by God himself. We've got stuff that we have to do. But these men, recognizing that God, of course, is their ultimate ruler and king, were still willing to humble themselves and do the hard, laborious work of helping to rebuild a wall. There are also several rulers of districts that are mentioned, uh, goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants, people that would have been you know, more of the upper class. They were willing, because of what was laid upon their heart by God and their recognition of their humility and their humble position before God, willing to do the work that was required. Even if, by the way, that work was not something that was naturally in their... Uh, Skill set. I was going to say wheelhouse. You, get, you know what I'm saying. You know that you're a perfumer. I don't stack rocks. I don't lead a crew to, to build a wall. But okay, this is necessary. I'll go do this. Uh, I could think uh, easily, but I won't do that because of the people that I'd leave out. But there are a number of people in the congregation I can think of that are that way. A need has arisen. This is not something that would be naturally they're bent to do. I'm available. I'll do it. His fellow priests, oh, excuse me, I backed up there. Uh, in contrast to the prideful Tekoite nobles, the rulers, the perfumers, the goldsmiths, the perfumers, the, uh, excuse me, the goldsmiths and the merchants saw themselves on the same level as every other Israelite below the mighty king God, humbled before him and were willing to do the hard work that was needed to be done. Give honor to whom, give honor to whom honor is due. That was what the Lord was doing, one of the things he was doing with Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, the last thing I want to mention, and this is the biggie right here, okay, this is the, this is the, the what's the word I'm looking for? The high point. The crest. Yes, right, the peak. Okay, we'll go with that. I think that the most important reason for this chapter is to tell us something about our God. I believe that Nehemiah 3 is here primarily to show us the way that God works in this world. God wanted the wall of Jerusalem rebuilt. As Sam mentioned last week, God could have simply recreated it with a thought, with a word, wall, and there'd be a perfect wall built around Jerusalem. But he didn't do that. He used the combined efforts of Eliashib and Malchijah and the Tekoites and all the others. He used human effort to accomplish his will. And I think this passage is showing us that God usually fulfills his plans by using his people working together. There are, of course, other ways that God's work, God works, but usually he brings his will about through his people. 
It isn't necessary. God needs nothing. God needs no one. In Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul told the people of Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the source and creator of everything. There is nothing that he needs. So our participation in his work is not us giving something to God that he needs. That is God giving us the blessing of participating in what he's doing. Everything was created by God, so there's nothing that he needs. He doesn't even need, by the way, our love or our praise or our worship or our devotion. He doesn't need these things. He is delighted in them. And he knows that it is for our good and his glory that we participate in them. But it is not a need in God. God is not a needy God. He is fully complete and has been for all eternity. The triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Always and forever perfect, complete, and satisfied. He needs nothing. But praise God that he doesn't need anything. He doesn't have to lean on humanity to provide his needs. Instead, he is able to freely offer us the opportunity to participate in what he's doing. Now, going back to the situation in Nehemiah, I mentioned he could have recreated the wall. He could have also said, okay, I'm going to send down about a thousand angels. They're going to guard Jerusalem. Jerusalem won't even need a wall. But he didn't do that. He laid it on the heart of this man who was cupbearer to the king, burdened him so deeply that he uprooted his entire life and gave his entire concentration to rebuilding this wall. And then he moved in the hearts of all of the people of Israel to participate in this great work. Sometimes God does accomplish his work completely without human involvement. Uh, one good example would be when Israel crossed the Red Sea. God did not tell Moses and the Israelites, you guys get out there, half of you paddle one way and half of you paddle the other and see if you can open up a little channel. God just said, Moses, you just you know, stretch out your hand there and, and I'm, I'm going to do all the work. And that's what he did. But here we see that God chose to work through human means. And that is normally the way that God gets his work done. He graciously chooses to use us to give us the pleasure and blessings and joy of participating with him and what he's doing in the world. Usually, he works through his people, those who have believed in him and are united to him through faith. He works through people high in society and low in society, the high priests and the person who was the lowest rung in their society that day, rich and poor, male and female, young and old. One man, as a matter of fact, it mentions, I'll just, I said male and female, it actually mentions that at one point. There was one guy who I assume did not have any sons. He brought his, his daughters out there. And I was reading a commentary that said it was not uncommon because this guy was higher up in society for people that were well off to have their daughters, have their daughters married off by the age of 14 to 16. So if they were unmarried, it's likely they were just teenagers too. So this guy... I mean, this, guy, this guy's daughters were willing to put their hand to the work as well, to lift the stones and stack and help to build the wall. It seems that God takes special delight in working through the combined efforts of his people. It seems that God derives a special kind of glory when we come together as a body to do what God has called us to do. The outworking of God's plan will indeed happen with or without your participation. There's no one indispensable. God needs nothing and no one to fulfill his will. But he is inviting us to participate. Like a mother letting her five-year-old help her to make supper. She can get along just fine without her child's help, but she delights in letting her little one 
participate with her. The Lord loves us so much that he delights in working through us to build his kingdom. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what God was doing through Israel in today's passage, and that's what he continues to do through believers today. In response to the Lord's work in their hearts, Israel joined together to do what God had called them to do. The Lord provided a leader for the people. He provided resources for them, and he gave them to the desire to do the work. And we're in exactly the same case. God has provided a leader for us. Not Sam, I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. God has provided us with a leader. He has provided resources for us, the indwelling Holy Spirit and the riches of spiritual blessings. And he gives us a common cause to work toward making disciples of all nations, as Brad mentioned earlier. In response to Nehemiah 3, I think the Lord is telling us this this morning. As the people of God, we should unite to do the work of God. Since God has given us life in Christ, since we've been forgiven, regenerated, filled with the Holy Spirit, adopted and accepted, let's join together to do what God has called us to do. If you have a personality, I just want to give a little bit of a warning here and hopefully diffuse it. If you have a personality like mine, and I, uh, I was raised in the church, so I have sat through many a sermon. I was, uh, you know, like many of you, I was, I'm old enough to have been three services a week uh, you know, back in the day, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then sometimes we'd have revivals that would, you know, every night for a week or two. Uh, if you're like me, you might hear something like this, as people of God, we should unite to do the work of God, and that statement itself will cause an explosion of shame and condemnation in you. Oh my goodness, I am, I am not doing enough. I'm letting so many opportunities go by. I, I just, I, I don't know how God can even look at me. Please don't take it that way. Please don't take it that way. This is not a club that is designed to beat you up. It is not an attempt to guilt you into doing stuff for FBC. Uh, Romans 8.1 is now and forever true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are not now, nor will you ever be condemned. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, one who now is on the other side of the cross, the Spirit of God is working in you to make you more like Jesus. And that's where the work that God has called us to do comes into play. We are not working in order to maintain our place in the family of God. We're not working in order to have our sins forgiven. We're working as a response to that. We've been forgiven. We've been adopted. We're safe forever. We're loved and accepted. And now the Spirit is working to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, helping us to turn continually from sin and helping us to grow in his grace and knowledge. This exhortation to do the work of God alongside your fellow saints is not given to bring you shame. It's intended to convict you of selfishness and apathy, if that fits, if you're in that state, and to move you to stop, to ser excuse me, to stoop, <laughs> To serve your Lord. If you are participating in God's work, then be encouraged, be thankful that you're blessed to participate in what God's doing in the world. But if you aren't, let me urge you to let the Spirit of God move you in repentance and faith toward Him to say, Lord, I am going to step out, I am going to enter in, and I am going to work with other saints to do your work. Not to gain acceptance, not to hold on to your place at the Father's table, but as a response to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. And as an act of moving further away from your sin nature and further toward 
the image of Jesus Christ. Author James Hamilton summarizes the message of Nehemiah 3 in light of the work of Christ this way. The truth, goodness, and beauty of God on display in the gospel is worth more than our petty causes, more than our personal luxuries and advantages, and more than our very lives. This passage, I believe, exemplifies the righteous response to the goodness and greatness of God in our lives, the righteous response to his saving work. We join with other believers to do the work of God. But that brings up one more question. What is the work of God? What is the work of God? In Nehemiah's day, the work of God for these Israelites was to rebuild the wall. That was very clear, and they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. What about in our day? In John chapter 6, a crowd of people once asked Jesus, what should we be doing to do the works of God? And what did Jesus say? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. In other words, the primary, foundational, most important work of God is us putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in what God has provided for our salvation and righteousness, trusting in his life and death and resurrection, looking to him and him alone to forgive your sins and bring you into the family of God. Faith in Jesus is what unites you to the Lord and makes you the Father's beloved child forever. And once you believe in him, you are now part of a family here on earth called the church, the people of God. And the primary work of the church given to us by God is to make disciples, helping people to come to know Jesus and helping those who do know him to grow in the Lord. And just as God worked through the natural means of physical effort to rebuild Jerusalem's wall, he usually works through the natural means of believers' efforts to make disciples. Again, God could send an angel to give someone the gospel and lead them to the Lord. God could appear to them in a dream, and he's done those kinds of things. But normally, he works through you and I teaching our children about the Lord and telling our friends and neighbors about the Lord. Now, I realize that at this point, I'm still being pretty general, so uh, let me just get down to a few specifics. Uh, think for a second about what happens here on Sunday mornings. We gather as a church body to worship, to, to learn God's word, to be strengthened in our faith, to encourage other believers. We gather, of course, to make disciples and, and to help disciples to grow. So how could you join with other believers on Sunday morning to do the work of God? Well, you could volunteer in the nursery. And here's why. The nursery exists so that parents of small children can gather with the body of Christ in the main service and, and in life group and have uh, focused, undivided attention on receiving what is being given there. So the nursery ministry is making disciples. Even if those babies aren't necessarily understanding anything right now, you are helping to make disciples of the parents that are able to join freely in the life of the congregation. So joining, uh, excuse me, helping in the nursery would be one example of joining the people of God to do God's work. The most visible people on Sunday morning, of course, are the people that are on the stage, uh, the musicians, and the preacher. But every nursery worker, every kids' ministry worker, every usher, every deacon, every person in the tech booth, every person at the guest desk, every greeter, all of you 
are working together with us to make disciples, okay? It doesn't happen just from the people that are visible. Everybody working together is what makes disciples. All of us united under the leadership and lordship of Jesus Christ accomplish the work of God. So one way to apply this message would be to look for a place to serve on Sunday morning gatherings. If you have children in kids' ministries or uh, on Sunday morning, you could see if there's a need for more helpers there. Uh, oh, and by the way, let me just add this to you. When I mention these areas, okay, let me just say that our desire is very firmly to not burn people up or use them up. Okay, these are opportunities for you to grow as a disciple, but we don't want anybody to have to shoulder the burden every single Sunday, year in and year out. That's part of the reason why we want to come together as a body, because the load can be shared then. And so, you know, uh, one person is, or a few people are helping in the nursery this month, and a few different ones next month. I don't know how the schedule goes, so don't quote me on that. But the point being that as we work together, we're able to share the burden. When we're all working together, the workload is spread out. Uh, I need to wrap up, don't I? Somebody tapping their watch back there. Okay, so here's the last thing I'll add. Doing the work of God is not limited to Sunday morning. And I told him I was going to quote him, so he stayed awake. Uh, Don Westbrook this morning. Don, uh, we had an elders meeting this morning uh, before service, and uh, in the elders meeting, one of the, thing Don remind, one of the things Don reminded us of is that we are here together one to three hours of the week, Sunday morning. And there are 168 hours in the week. So most of your life is lived outside of this gathering, outside of the, the, this campus. So doing the work of God is not limited to just serving right here. Doing the work of God is serving in the community as well, so reaching out to people in need. Uh, I think of a couple of awesome ministries like Hardison's, and uh, Longview Community Ministries that are usually in need of volunteers. That is an opportunity for you to join with other believers to do the work of God in the community. And I will add this before I wrap up. Uh, I do understand that there are different circumstances people are going through. Uh, I, I hope that you are experiencing, if you are at fellowship, if you have been here for a while, that you're experiencing an atmosphere of grace and the reason I bring that up is this. I don't want anybody to feel guilty if they are currently in a crisis or an emergency, having health problems or something like that, that they're not doing enough. Okay, there are times when a person needs to come here and just receive and be built up and heal. And we understand that, okay? So we're not, uh, we're not putting marks by people's names when they're not serving or something like that. Uh, I want you to know that there is understanding and discernment. But for most of us who are not in that state... Let me just encourage you and exhort you again to look for ways to join with other believers to do the work of God, whether it's on Sunday morning or in the community. As I close, uh, I'm just going to mention again that uh, there's going to be another song sung here in just a minute. And after the song, the prayer team is going to come up. So there'll be people up here in front of the stage who would love to pray with you and, or about, uh, not about you, <laughs> Pray with you about anything you're facing. I get that straight. Uh, and if you are here this morning and you don't know the Lord, I know Dave Romaley mentioned this at the end of his communion message as well. There are lots of people in here that you could talk to that would tell, love to tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ and how you yourself can enter into, enter into the salvation that he freely offers. But all of these people at the front would also be available for that. So 
I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite the team back up. Heavenly Father, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, the one who never failed, the one who is invincible, the one who is undefeatable, the victorious Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, Lord, we come to you and we dedicate our lives to you insofar as we're able, Lord. We know we are weak. We know we are naturally selfish and sinful. But by your grace, God, you still choose to use us to do your work. And we praise you for that. Lord, I ask for you to have mercy on this congregation. I ask you to work in this congregation, to use this body to magnify your name amongst ourselves and throughout the communities around us. I pray, O oh God, that you would bless each and every person here with a special measure of grace. Those who know you, Lord, that they would be re-strengthened and renewed in their faith in you and able to rest in the love that you provide. And those that don't know you, I pray, God, that you would draw their hearts to come to you for life and salvation. Lord God, I praise you for what we have experienced this morning. I praise you for your presence. I praise you for the music and the singing and the scriptures and the prayers. And Lord God, we offer to you this week under your glorious name, amen and amen. Please stand as you're able. Thank you. 
Oh 